Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Lewis Carroll, author of Alice in Wonderland, said, Begin at the beginning and go on until you come to the end. Then stop. Strong advice, so let's start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And into the chaotic waters, God speaks. With power and authority, he governs and rules over the chaos. Out of the deep waters, God creates a good and a perfect world, including humanity, who he appoints as his representatives on earth. And we know how the story goes. Tragically, humans rebel against God. They rebel against his good world and his way. And what they end up doing is they push back on the blessing of his good order and they choose instead to define what is good and what is evil for themselves. And since then, humanity has continuously participated in allowing chaos to run rampant in God's good world. But the biblical narrative tells us that God is on a mission. He's on a mission to rescue us out of the chaos and to restore us and the world around us to the goodness of his design intent. As we have seen through the series that we've been in, Tilling the Soil, this begins with a covenant. God promises Abraham that through his lineage, all nations of the world will receive God's blessing. And although they are not perfect, God works through this family and he appoints them as partners of the covenant promise. And today, we're going to see how God continues to remain faithful to his covenant promise of deliverance and provision through the life of Moses and the Israelite nation, Abraham's descendants who have expanded at this stage over many generations. So we enter their story in the book of Exodus, and we find that the Israelites are enslaved by Egyptian rule. In a shrewd attempt to control the growing population, taskmasters are assigned over the Israelites and they are oppressed by forced labor. Yet, the nation of Israel continues to grow and the threatened Egyptians came to dread them. So the king of Egypt commands Hebrew midwives to murder every son that is born into an Israelite family. But these women, they feared God and they didn't do as he commanded. And what ended up happening is that eventually the king issued an edict that every son born to a Hebrew should be thrown into the Nile River. And it's into this particular context that Moses was born. My earliest reference to Moses was the 1998 film, The Prince of Egypt. And I wonder if any of you watched that growing up. My main takeaway from that film as a child was the sound of the spirit as he moved across certain points of the story. And quite honestly, I just found that mildly terrifying. Anyway, through a series of astonishing events, Moses, 
named so because he was quite literally drawn out from a reed basket in the waters, is adopted into Pharaoh's household. After he kills a brutal Egyptian taskmaster, Moses flees to Midian. And this is where God reveals himself to Moses in that well-known burning bush. And it's during this encounter with God that Moses is commissioned to deliver the Israelite nation out from Egyptian oppression. And with the help of his brother Aaron, Moses confronts Pharaoh and he pleads for the Israelites' release. As the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh begins to intensify, we read God's instruction to Moses in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. This is what it says. Tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. As the conflict with Pharaoh intensifies, this is the refrain that God commands Moses to repeat. Let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. God hits Egypt with a series of plagues and Pharaoh eventually relents and lets the people go. And this is where we will take a closer look at the story. And today, what I want to do is look at three things. Firstly, the Israelite exodus through the waters into the wilderness. Then Christ, who goes before us through the waters and into the wilderness. And finally, our call to go through the waters and into the wilderness. So let's begin with the Israelite exodus through the waters and into the wilderness. During their escape from Egypt, God led Moses and the Israelites out of slavery miraculously by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. But when Pharaoh heard that the Israelites had indeed fled when he gave them permission to do so, he realized what he had done and he changes his mind. And so Pharaoh and his troop of 600 chariots pursue them. And this brings us to Exodus chapter 14, verse 15 to 22. The escape through the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved in from front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. And there was a cloud of darkness. It lit up the night and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea onto dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. 
The Egyptians continue to pursue the Israelites, but the Lord closes the waters and they are totally consumed by chaos and the watery depths. None survive. However, the Israelites walk through the sea, like we read in the scriptures, on dry ground. And that day, they are saved from Egyptian oppression. The scripture tells us in verse 31, that when Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people of Israel feared the Lord and they believed in him. This enslaved nation's freedom is purchased by God because he parts the chaotic waters of the sea. They cross on dry ground to safely emerge on the other side and inhabit fully the promises of God. It is exactly as God said it would be. They are set free to worship him in the wilderness. And the first thing that the Israelites do is erupt into song. They give testimony to the salvation of the Lord and they praise him saying, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. That's from Genesis chapter 15, verse one. What is so interesting in this account is that the activity of God in this story runs parallel to the activity of God in the creation account. Follow this with me. In the beginning, the spirit hovered over the watery chaos and God parts the waters into land and sea. Eden, a covenant land, is given to humanity that we might inhabit the fullness of God's promises and worship him. In the Exodus account, a strong east wind synonymous with the spirit, blows the waters apart, revealing dry land. And the people of God are once again set free to inhabit the fullness of God's promises and worship him. You see, the scriptures in these two stories and others are establishing a pattern of salvation for us. And it's really beautiful. I'm gonna ask you to put this into your back pocket because we're gonna talk about it again in a moment. Israel now finds themselves as a nation without a home. Led out of Egypt by the Lord, they wander the wilderness and their commitment to God is tested. Before we move on, I wanna pause and consider the wilderness, which scripture associates with a season of testing. Throughout the Old Testament, God allows tests to see if those who follow him are willing to live in the fullness of covenant union with him, faithfully. The test of the wilderness is not a trap set by a vindictive or spiteful God, but rather it is an allowed invitation by God to till the soil of the human heart. It is an allowed invitation rooted in holy and righteous love to weed out that which would pre prohibit in any way the people of God from inhabiting the fullness of his promises and loving him. While there are accounts of men and women who respond to testing in great faith, it is devastatingly clear that humanity is bound to repeat the failure of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this creates a, sac a sacred and this holy vacuum of longing 
a desperation for someone who can come and pass that ultimate test and restore covenant fidelity to God amongst his people so that his people can inhabit the fullness of his promises as he intended. In the wilderness, despite God's miraculous provision of food and water each day, along with access to his presence, the Israelites begin to wonder why God actually saved them in the first place. They even begin to grumble, saying, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt and we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. And our generation is criticized for a short memory span. That clearly didn't happen in Egyptian oppression. Like Isaiah 63 verse 12 to 13 says, it was for these very same people that God made his glorious strength available at the right hand of Moses, divided the water before them to make an eternal name for himself and led them through the depths like a horse in the wilderness so they did not stumble. Yet, the soil of their heart revealed a lack of trust in the one who had torn open the heavens and come down. He had come down and intervened in human history by splitting the chaotic waters. In the cloud by day, in the pillar of fire at night, in the daily provision of bread and water in the wilderness. And so God's plan to deliver his people to the land that he had promised them, which should have been a two-week journey, became a 40-year haul, ultimately because of their unfaithfulness and rebellion toward him. However, God remains true once again to his promise of deliverance and provision for his people. And ultimately, he provides someone who not only leads us through the chaotic wilderness, but also into the fullness of God's promises. And this person is the one we have longed for. This person is the one all of those holy desires and intent have been directed towards. And he is the one who passes the supreme test and is God's ultimate agent of blessing to the world. This brings us to our second point, which is Christ through the waters and into the wilderness. So let's turn to Mark chapter 1 verse 9 to 13. It's the baptism and temptation of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by, uh, in the river Jordan by John. As soon as he came up and out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. So now I'm going to ask you to reach into your back pocket, friends, because Jesus goes through the waters and the Spirit of God descends, just like he did in Genesis 1 and during the exodus out of Egypt. Once again, God tears open the, open the heavens and breaks into the human experience so that his people would be delivered out of slavery and the resulting chaos of our rebellion against God. And this time, it is Christ who will say to the great oppressor, let my people go so that they can worship me. This time, it is Christ 
who will go through the chaotic waters so that the people of God are set free to inhabit the fullness of God's promises. Through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the pattern of salvation is complete and we realize God's purpose for the world. Tim Mackey explains that this is to overcome the chaos first unleashed in the garden so the people of God can emerge and inhibit, inhabit the fullness of his promises, which we read in Revelation 21 verse 1 to 5. A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth will pass away and the sea will be no more. A holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And a loud voice from the throne will say, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Christ's baptism is a promise and a foretaste of his ultimate death and resurrection. Tamaki makes this clear for us by explaining that Christ is submerged under the waters of death and chaos and then raised to life up and out of death and chaos. You see, Christ comes as the great liberator of those who are enslaved. He comes as the great liberator of those who are oppressed, not to Pharaoh, but to Satan, sin and the world. Christ comes to lead his people in the new exodus through the chaotic waters and into freedom so that we can worship him forever. Immediately, after his baptism, we see something really interesting. The Spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness where he is tested, not for 40 years, but 40 days. You see, where Moses failed, Christ prevailed, and he emerged ready for his messianic mandate, which was to give up his life for the sin of the world so that through him, God's covenant blessing could be enjoyed by all nations at all times. And this, friends, is the good news of the gospel. To Satan, sin, and the chaos of the world, Jesus victoriously declares, let my people go so that they can worship me. This brings us to our final point. We are called to go through the waters and into the wilderness. So all of this in mind, what does it mean for us? Well, we are called to follow Jesus through the waters and into the wilderness so that we can add our voice in worshiping him. Like our forefathers, we continue to rebel against God and we push back the blessing of his good order. We choose to define for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And we participate in allowing chaos to run rampant in God's good world enslaved to ancient patterns of sin, Satan and the world, we need a liberator, 
someone who will win our freedom and rescue us from danger. And deep in the core of our collective psyche, we know this to be true. And so what we do is we appoint false liberators and we plead for our salvation. We appoint celebrities, influencers, and academics in the hope that they will enlighten us and show us the way to freedom, and we worship them. We appoint mammon, the quality and quantity of what we own, in the hope that our things will provide freedom, and we worship them. We appoint wellness and self-actualization, self-care, and personality tools in the hope that they will lead us into a full and meaningful life, and we worship them. I could go on forever. And while these are not bad things, and some of them are even really good, they are not our liberators. And when we hold them as such, as such, they ultimately have power to become our oppressors. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, human history and our own personal awareness reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so once again, God intervenes in human history. He tears open the heavens and Christ comes down, the one true liberator. And so we are invited to receive then the salvation that the one true liberator Christ provides and follow him in obedience, faithfully through the chaotic waters into the fullness of God's promises so that we can worship him. This is why we go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is why today we are baptizing friends in our community. We follow Jesus into the water. We identify with his death. We identify with his resurrection. And like the Israelites, we are set free. We no longer live in Egypt and we are not slaves to sin. This is our testimony. This is our cry. This is our song of worship. By following Christ through the waters, we declare our helplessness and confess our participation in the chaos. But then we emerge on the other side on dry ground in the new creation as new beings. There's this beautiful promise in Isaiah that he takes our hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh and we step into the fullness of God's promise to worship him. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 to 5 tells us, since we have been united with Christ in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. We have been set free to worship him. Like the parents of our faith, every saint who has gone before us and Christ himself, the truth is that in our freedom, we will face the wilderness. A holy invitation to till the soil of our heart and weed out anything that might prohibit us from inhabiting the fullness of God's promises and worshiping him and him alone. None of us lack discomfort or pain. None of us lack suffering in any shape, size or form. I just think of that old fairy tale with the princess and the pea. 
She felt the discomfort of a tiny little piece stacked on a whole tower of mattresses. And so do we, if we're honest. But in James chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, he writes something counterintuitive that sits at the heart of covenant faithfulness and unity with God. He writes, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Our testing, or our seasons in the wilderness, can be, as the priest Alan Jones suggests, a place of revelation, conversion, and transformation. For it is in the wilderness that we are invited to wait, weep, and learn to live. Ruth Haley Barton says that the wilderness can be a place where we find clarity, discover our inner strength, and experience the salvation that comes from God alone. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, in the wilderness, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The story of the Israelites should be a cautionary tale to us. Till the soil of your heart so that it becomes fertile ground for the seed of God's promises to take root, lest we grumble and miss the miraculous. While the test of the wilderness is not easy, it's an important invitation to mature into the image of Jesus. And like Christ, the wilderness prepares us in extraordinary ways to fulfill our commission, which is to worship him and to extend as his partners his covenant blessing across the earth. You know, I learned something about the wilderness this year. Other than driving through South Africa's Karoo, I have not been to the desert before. And so as we drove towards Joshua Tree in January, I felt as though God was inviting me into a sacred path through the wilderness. Now, I know this sounds a bit dramatic, but for me, it was quite a, a poignant experience. Of course, I have wandered the wilderness of my own life in seasons of drought, despair, and sparse growth. I've thirsted in the sweltering heat of the wasteland, but actually being in the desert that was something entirely new for me and reorienting. As I looked across this vast landscape, some things became uncommonly apparent in my own heart. A cry in the wilderness is carried on the wind and a cry in the wilderness is carried so clearly across valleys. The wind, I learned, grows louder in the wilderness and the vast horizon is put on magnificent display. And this made me think about my life, and it made me think about your life. Like John the baptizer, our lives can be a cry in the wilderness, heralding, proclaiming, and testifying of who the Lord is.
We can proclaim Christ and the fullness of his promises. And I believe that as we do this, our words, deeds, and the posture of our heart is carried on the wind of the Spirit. Our worship and devotion and covenant unity with God is carried further and longer across valleys that more might hear of who the Lord is. In the wilderness of our lives, the Spirit's voice grows louder. And as we thirst, our longing leads to listening because we listen to find life so that we can perceive the voice of the Lord with greater clarity. Finally, the wilderness horizon promises of what is to come, the great city of God. In the wilderness, we see what we have left and we see very clearly where we are to go. It is in the wilderness that we can proclaim with great joy and conviction that we have been set free to worship him. At the end of his life, Moses gives a final exhortation to the Israelites. It is the same exhortation I believe that God would hold before us today. These things are not just meaningful, meaningless words. They are quite the opposite. They are our life. As he says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1 to 4, Let God's teaching fall like rain, and his word settle like dew. Let gentle rain on, like gentle rain on new grass and showers on tender plants. Let the word of God settle in your heart because it is our life. So I believe we must ask ourselves this question in response. Will we proclaim the name of the Lord? Will we declare the greatness of him? In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7, God reveals to Moses who he is and he shows him just how great he is. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. Friends, Christ is our great liberator, and he has set us free. May we respond like Moses did at the very end of his life and bow down, fall to the ground, and worship him. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.